Thanks for tuning into the Refuge Church Sermon Podcast. It's our prayer that the Spirit would use God's Word to stir your affections for Christ during this time. While we're glad to provide this online content, please remember that it's not intended to replace commitment and connection within a local church family. Now, here's this week's message. From Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 1. You shall therefore love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And then skipping to verse 13. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its seasons, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. And he will give grass in your fields and your, for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. Then skipping to verse 26. See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing. If you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I have commanded you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known, the grass withers and the flowers fade. Thank you, Katie. Uh, Kiddos. We have Elevate this morning, and that's going to be Miss Susan, and who else are you teaming up with? And Miss Rose back there, so that's going to be a fun morning if you want to head back. That way, that's uh, first and second grade, and everybody else is going to hang out in here as we continue through our series in Deuteronomy. And I'm going to attempt to open. Uh, And we've been going through this the last several weeks, uh, Deuteronomy, and we are now to chapter 11. Uh, And next week we will we will hit we'll start hitting the rules and the stipulations. Uh, So get ready. Lots of excitement going into the fall. All those things that you wondered about of uh, when exactly you can put a disobedience unto death. Uh, You know, those questions of the Bible that you often bring to church. Stay tuned. Um, When uh, I've I've told this story before, uh, but when I was in high school, uh, I didn't I didn't date very much. Um, I was hyper. I was socially awkward and uh, I got friend zoned a lot, a whole lot. but one, one girl that, that I dated, uh, one of my dating relationships, um, she, was, she was eccentric at the time, but I mean, you know how when you get older and you kind of look back on high school and you're like, was she eccentric or, or was it me, right? So the benefit of hindsight, self-awareness, shame, all that stuff, I kind of look back now and I'm like, maybe it wasn't her. <laughs> um, regardless, or you can now say irregardless, uh, 
I don't know who was more eccentric, but there, there were two events that took place to set up this story. The first was that I was going to break up with her. I, I don't remember exactly why. I'm sure it was a very good and healthy reason. Um, and I think it's because I started liking this other girl. Um, if you think you're judging now, just wait, it gets worse. Um, anyway, I was gonna break up with her. The, the other event that took place was Wednesday night at church, uh, at, a, at our church youth group, I, I did the whole, um, if you've ever done this as a kid, where you have a friend get on all fours and you jump off their back to dunk a basketball. And I attempted that. And um, I, my, my feet swung up and gravity and stupidity took over and I fell and broke my arm pretty badly. And no, I did not make the dunk. Let's get that out of the way. Um, so anyway, uh, the girlfriend that I was going to break up with heard about my broken arm and she very kindly and compassionately uh, brought me a gift. And she came over and she brought me a gift. And it was, um, it was a long sleeve, blue plaid, button down shirt, very nice and, and um, matching boxers. And I've never been in a situation where I've needed those things to match, but nevertheless, uh, they were both very cool and way cooler. I, I am not the, I was not the fashion king that you see before you today. Uh, they were way beyond my scale and scope of fashion and they were really cool and I liked them. And, um, and it was very, very kind of her. Um, and all of a sudden I find myself kind of in a Seinfeld-esque conundrum where I really liked the shirt <laughs> and, and matching boxers. Um, but, but, I, but I was ready to break up with the girl who was giving them to me. And so, and so I began to ask myself the question, how much longer do you have to date a person to keep the gifts that they gave you even though you, you don't necessarily want to date them anymore? Um, so, uh, for those of you who want to judge my shallowness Relentlessly, let me tell you that you are absolutely granted the freedom to do that. Uh, for those of you who may feel less alone in the world right now, uh, you're welcome. Um, and, and by all means, incredible grace to uh, the girl that I dated in, in high school, um, who, to my knowledge, never once asked for or thought to ask for uh, that really cool shirt back <laughs> as I wore it. Out, I think, I, I wear it all the time. Um, here's the issue that we're gonna face today in the text and then really in our own lives persistently, and Eric hit on this in the music, um, that Israel is both being warned about and then and, and steadied for and disciplined for. When we love the gift more than the giver of the gift, it does not produce joy and love and delight, it produces obligation. Sometimes almost oppressive obligation. How much do I owe you? 
This morning, as we look in, in uh, Deuteronomy 11, Moses is, is going to give us one final recap uh, of all that the Lord has done. The call to delight in him, to trust him, to love him, which is bizarre. We've gone through this ancient cosmology, the way gods worked back in that day, the way that the people saw gods, and God and love never go in a sentence together. So it's, it's rather bizarre. Um, and then starting next week in chapter 12, we're going to be going through uh, these specific stipulations of the covenant. And again, just to give you a foretaste, not these letters of the law necessarily that we are to continue to follow to a T, but what they will bring about in the people that we are to become. The type of people that God's people are to be. And just so you know, when you're walking in, you're like, well, it says don't kill, it, don't kill people. We all know not to do that. God is not starting his people at a graduate level course in time and history. He is starting his people at the very beginning when all they knew was you don't kill people because it messes with the land, not because it's a moral issue. So keep that in mind even as we're on the brink of this. So for today... I, I really hope today is clarifying and hopeful. Um, I hope it brings the measure of both conviction and relief. Uh, the outline that we're going to look at as we do the overview of chapter 11 here is um, love and obey when blessings become curses and then the beauty of Bach. So we're going to start with love and obey. I'm going to get myself a little more room here. All right. Uh, we'll start in Deuteronomy chapter, uh, chapter 11, verse 1. The first verse here. You shall therefore love the Lord your God, keep his charge, his statutes, and his rules, and his commandments always. Um, this, is a, this is a weird command, isn't it? I, it's become old hat, and we're used to it, and we've heard, love God, right? But it's a weird command. It's a command. Love God. Does anybody else think that's a weird command? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a weird command. Uh, rest assured, it was far weirder when Moses was saying this. Because again, this was just out of any realm of thought. In fact, love in general in the ancient day was, was a hard concept. Um, and uh, it, it certainly wasn't necessarily an emotion. Uh, most things in that day were... were uh, were transactional. Certainly relationships with God were transactional. I do this for you and then you give us this and we try to keep you happy. Uh, I'd be curious to, to read more about the idea of romance in the ancient world, for, certainly for marriage, um, especially outside Jewish culture, even within Jewish culture, marriage had nothing to do with romance. It had to do with financial decisions and family planning and, and, and land. Uh, it was certainly more business transaction than anything else. Um, all other relationships were interesting. So it's weird to think that the greatest command and the deepest desire of God for his people is that they would love him. Now, it's important to make known this is not a need from God. God is not incomplete. The other gods, the ancient cosmology, all the other gods needed people to do the work, to keep the lawn mowed and to do the harvest so that they could eat and they didn't have to do that. 
So they needed people. They were very needy. God doesn't need people to love him. The command for us to love him is not some kind of shortcoming on God's part, but it, it, it's actually what we, what we were created to do. It's our deepest need was to love him. And I think that makes it even more interesting. Our greatest need is to love God. And, and why? Because it keeps things in the order that they should be in. When that gets out of order, when we love anything more than God, that's not what we were created to do. And that's where things start to fall apart. That's Genesis 3. Where things start to just go south. Not only our relationship with God, our relationship with each other, our relationship with the land and work, everything gets messed up when we love anything else more than God. This is the way we were designed. And not only that, but the confidence we have to love God is because he first loved us. You, you may say, well, how did they know that? How did they know God loved them? It's a good question. Because Moses tells them over and over, he called you, he rescued you, he delivered you, he made himself known to you, he defended you, he disciplined you, and he committed himself to you in a covenant marriage relationship by giving these commands and taking on this covenant. And the, the, the commitment was to, the fa to their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but it was passed down from generation to generation. And Moses even says, some of these were acts, and Moses goes over this again, all the things that God did to deliver them. And he'll even say that some of these were acts from our Father's Day, but a lot of these you were alive to see. This is your generation. <sighs> Friend, struggler, skeptic, doubter, believer, wherever you are this morning, I cannot overstate this enough. There is nothing in all of the world that he has even remotely, has even remotely as much evidence as God's love for you. It is overwhelming. None of this happens without God's love. Even the warnings to the other nations, none of this happens apart from God's love. None of it. And listen, and I, it makes me uncomfortable. God's love, well, you gotta qualify that. No, I'm tired of qualifying it. His love is, is extravagant. It is scandalous. And it's proven over and over and over again. And I've said this before, we are presumptuous, presumptuous, uh, the other one's not a word. We are presumptuous when we sing of our love for God, which is weird. We can have more confidence in singing of God's love for us. And that's weird because I don't know any like top 20 pop hits writing about how much that girl loved me. But that should be every Christian song. We can sing with confidence God's love for us. Awe and wonder and praise that God has lavished on us. And this is my favorite. It's an old Charles Wesley hymn. 
And it's kind of hard to sing, but I hope a few of you know it and sing along with me. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me who caused his pain for me that he to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be Thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Sing that again. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me. Oh, if we were to get that. If we were even to remotely get that. And we're not, we're never able to fully get it. We'll get to that in a little bit. <laughs> But to think that we are incredibly, amazingly, overwhelmingly loved by God. And when that hits, our response does not have to be obligation. And it's never, that's not fair. But it can become joy and love in return where we could actually delight in pleasing the one who has loved us so thoroughly and so completely. And to do what he commands, even if and when it goes against what we want, because we recognize that he is good and his commands for us are good. Ah, but you might say, but if he loves us so much, why is there so much suffering? Why is destruction? Why are these, these commands in here? Why there is, is there both blessings and curses here? Why are all these warnings and caveats and all that stuff? I would like to submit that I don't think that in any way affects God's love, for, God's love and, and who he is in loving his people and all people. It does, however, I think, show just how deep the rabbit hole of sin goes. Sin in rebellion, sin in fear, sin in all of those things. I've, the, 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 I've shared this before, but the nature of sin is not that God is some kind of cosmic killjoy that takes all the fun stuff away. The nature of sin is that if God were to command us to have ice cream at every meal, that our hearts would be like, oh, every meal? Why can't I have broccoli and Brussels sprouts? That's, that's the nature of sin. So let's, let's get into 11, uh, the, the, the rest of the verses here in 11, uh, chapter 11. 13 through 17 says this, And if you will indeed obey my commands that I command you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early and the later rain, 
that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. He will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you will eat and be full. Take care, lest your heart be deceived, and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the land will yield no fruit, and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. And then at the end of Deuteronomy 11, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord, which I command you today, and the curse, if you don't obey the commandments of the Lord. But turn aside to the way that I'm commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. Um, we have a tendency in our day to question the goodness and love of the Lord, right? If God really loved me, then how come? And, and we can fill in the blank with any number of questions. How come he doesn't give me what I want? The easy and quick answer is because we often don't want what we need and what is good for us. Um, but uh, we'll, we'll set that aside for a second. Um, in the ancient world, everything was very difficult. You were highly dependent on lots of things to take place to exist. Uh, I'm not sure what quality of life looked like in the ancient world, um, uh, but you were highly dependent on uh, nature to provide. And maybe, maybe everything was paleo back then, so maybe that was good. Uh, but this is, a, this is a, an, agrarian, uh, an agrarian society. Uh, you ate what you grew, and if... And if it didn't grow, you didn't eat, right? The two major sacrifices and offerings to the gods in ancient cosmology were, in ancient cosmology were for two things, fertility and rain, life and water. These are the gifts of God. He will give the rain for your land in its season. The early rain and the late rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil. This is absolute blessing. The blessing of the blessing of God. It is security and safety. And it, it's actually it's so good that it makes me nervous to preach it, or are you just preaching health and wealth. You know, and I, I want to qualify, you know, health and wealth is not it. Uh, blessing is not just wealth and provision, but here, actually, God is promising wealth and provision and security. Like, that's what he promises. The good rain that you're going to eat and be full. The Shema that we looked at, Eric, we read from it this morning, the, the consequences. Uh, the Lord God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, great and good cities that you didn't build, that he's going to fill houses that you didn't fill, um, and uh, cisterns that you didn't dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you didn't plant. And when you eat and are full. All right, so if we're honest, and I don't even know if we actually pray for these things anymore, but if, if you were to assess your prayer life, how many of them are met right there? Security and safety. Probably a whole lot. Well, you might say, well, what about health? Ah, that you may live long in the land. Done and done. In the blessings of the Lord. The problem with the blessings is not the blessing themselves. It's what we are tempted to do with it. 
Take care lest you forget that it was God who provided all these things. And you turn aside and start worshiping other gods. The blessing that God gives his people is land, houses, kings, government, power. And instead of fueling, instead of all of those good gifts fueling their love for God and their generosity toward their neighbor, it turns their love toward the gifts and away from the God who gave them. Israel will get land and power. Right off the bat here, first out of, out of the gate, uh, is the time of the judges, one of the darkest times in all of scripture where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, a recipe for disaster. One day we'll get into how that fills into our uh, lives currently. Um, they're going to start off their kingship when God says, I'm going to give you a king. You don't need a king, but you want to be like the other nations, so I'm going to give you the king. And they start off their kingship, not with the one that God picks, but with King Saul. And did they pick Saul because he had great character and was humble of heart? No, he was tall and handsome. That makes for a good king. And of course, that goes south. And then through Saul, God trains David, the man after God's own heart. And David becomes king and is humbled. And this is the heyday of Israel, the great conquering king who will also have all kinds of personal issues. And he starts off humble of heart, but power, self-protection, has some problems with women. And that's going to lead to all kinds of familial discord and devastation. And then by the time we get to the third king in Solomon, God is going to build his temple. The external presence of God is going to be there while the kingdom is falling apart. And Solomon actually does almost verbatim, item by item, all the things that the king is not supposed to do when it comes to gold and silver, when it comes to chariots, when it comes to enslaving his own people. When he spends seven years on building the temple and 14 years on his own house. And it goes south and that leads to a division in the kingdoms. And then Israel, the ten tribes of Israel go off and do their own thing. And king after king after king walks in wickedness. And eventually they're conquered by the Assyrians. And Judah is mixed bag. Lots of kings doing wickedness in the eyes of the Lord. A couple of them actually turn in repentance and bring people back to, to God. But by the end of Judah, they're cutting the... The, the kings are cutting the scroll and throwing it into the fire. That's not good. Um, and God uses these nations that his people were supposed to destroy to actually come against them and pronounce his judgment on them. And the temple is destroyed by Babylon. Babylon, the, the chief enemy of God's people. And they're dancing in the rubble of the temple. Je Jeremiah laments how lonely sits the city that was once great and prosperous. The blessing of rain and of land and of power and peace were all gifts from God that were relatively quickly turned into gods themselves. The blessings became curses. When God becomes the means to our ends instead of the end himself. But throughout all these, we read these stories, these glimpses of hope, the remnant, 
after the exile, when God pronounces judgment on his people, the prophets, the words of the prophets go from warnings to comfort. Uh, if you find no other use for the Hebrew Scriptures, if you don't see anything else in the Hebrew Scriptures, see this pattern. What happens when we seek the hand of God more than God himself? I had lunch with my rabbi friend one time, and we were, I was lamenting over my people uh, and, and um, just how Christians have seemingly gone crazy. And, uh, and she said, yeah, we, we have a bit of that in our history, to which I quipped, it's almost like it's one continuous story. And, and listen, I want to say this again. God loves his people. He absolutely loves his people. And we've been messed up, again, for a good 5,000-year run here. And the fact that the world still exists should show his patience and forbearance and the love for all humanity, not wanting that anyone should perish. And yet God is righteous in his judgment. We're called and commanded to love him and obey. And we see with example after example that we simply cannot do that and the blessing that God gives become curses when they become the object of our worship. But we get to a new and same old time here. Galatians 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons... God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. You're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. The culmination of all of the Hebrew scriptures was through Christ, God making all people his people. The good news that we could be grafted into this story that the remnant now could mean us, that we could be reconciled, forgiven, brought into relationship with this God who created all things, not as outsiders, but as sons. And what Christ revealed is that the law was never something we could accomplish, but it would be accomplished on our behalf. And we would be free as family to love and serve. And for the first 300 years of its existence, Followers of Jesus, were, they were a force that the world had never seen before. A lot of the same principles and practices of the Jewish people that were unique, but then just exploded on the scene. And it was all the right ways. They were learning how to love people that were different from them. Economic levels that would never associate were sitting down at the same table sharing a meal together. The names of kings with, with the nameless peasants. Women were given dignity and worth and value. There was communion between, between royalty and servants and the poor. The stories of those who were struck with the plague in the early centuries and while the rest of the cities fled for their own lives, the Christians would actually risk death staying to care for the sick. 
Marriage in Christian communities became very, very hard to break, keeping men accountable to their vows. And uh, really, in social and marital commitments, uh, uh, defending women, the welcoming of people from all cultures and tribes, caring for widows and orphans, and all of this done with a radical commitment to nonviolence, even willing to give up their own life. And it was beautiful. And what compelled them to do this? What compelled these followers of Jesus to do this? It wasn't for empire. It wasn't for political or social power. It's because they had been, they were so convinced that they had been so deeply loved by God. How dare they not show that to the world? Ah, and the world around them, they saw this radical example. And you know what they did? They hated it. I know, I know, we have an A plus B equals C mentality. If the church would just be what she's called to be, everybody will see and they're going to want to join and they're going to want to be a part and the church will thrive and flourish. No, they didn't. It's already happened and no, they didn't. Diocletian and the great persecution, Christians were loving and serving. And when they converted to Christianity, or atheism as it was called back in that day, because they didn't believe in the Roman gods, they stopped purchasing silver, they stopped buying things and all of the outlets to ways to worship Roman gods, and it affected the economy. And Diocletian said, we need to be done with this. And he made it illegal to gather in Christian circles. He made it illegal to do worship services. He burned Bibles in public and put to death about 3,500 uh, Christians in the streets. If we just, you know, if we just love people, it's not quite that simple. And then it got even more confusing. Right after Diocletian came, this other guy came, Constantine, sees a vision in the sky of, of Cairo, a cross with the P, the first two letters of Jesus' name, and, and, it, and he's a saying that says, by this sign you shall conquer. And Constantine actually did some good things. He brought in some laws, some Christian laws that were helpful. He made persecution of religion, for the most part, with a couple qualifications. He made persecution of any religion outlawed because he didn't want others to experience what Christians had experienced. He gave lots of money to actually print Bibles that had been burned, to reprint them. And that was huge in that day. Amazon was, took way longer than, it was, there wasn't even Amazon Prime yet. Um, and uh, he made, uh, they made orphanages. They started caring for children. It became illegal to abandon children that were born. He gave us the weekend. He took this Judeo-Christian practice of a day off and made it universal. And he did some other things that weren't so good. And history is really complicated because it also gave church, the church power, a seat at the table, brought the church and followers of Jesus into a troubling relationship with the state. Throughout history, many wonderful and horrible things will be done in the name of Jesus. And even in our day, there's still pictures of followers of Jesus who are heavily persecuted, 
In fact, many sociologists would argue that Christians are still the most persecuted religion in the world. We don't see it in Western circles, but in, in, uh, in, in the Southern Hemisphere, where it's growing and thriving like crazy. And in the places where they don't have any cultural power whatsoever, they're serving and loving in beautiful ways. In America, it's complicated. It's complicated. Christians played vital roles in starting, sustaining, and ending slavery. Go bring it up to current day, Southern Baptist Convention. I was raised Southern Baptist, so it's like my kid brother where I can get mad at him, but you can't. Um, horrific allegations of abuse amongst its leaders from, you name it, sexual, financial, abuse of power, all kinds of uh, allegations. Um, and yet, the mission arm of the SBC, I bet most of you didn't know this, third largest relief organization in the world behind the Red Cross and the Salvation Army. First on the ground uh, after 9-11, first on the ground in major waves after Katrina, uh, I guarantee you they are working in South Carolina and Tampa right now doing things that you will never hear about. Serving and loving people in incredible ways. They have been down on the border caring for refugees and these, these detention camps that are down there, regardless of political opinions, they are down there like mass amounts of volunteers and finances giving food and spending time and caring for people in these detention centers. All of this with several voices that just reek of bigotry and sexism and rounds and rounds of really hateful political rhetoric. Ugh. I, I want the hot side hot and, and the cold side cold. You know, I hate the complicated mess of history. And yet here we are. So what's the call here? Well, um, this, this is my burden. Several years now, several years, um, before it became cool, friends and family either walking away from the faith or the church, or on the other side, just hammering down on nationalism and the us versus them political rhetoric. And filled with both of these and having to walk carefully. And it's discouraging and it's exhausting. And I'm gonna assume Maybe many of you have felt the same fight, the same tension. Walking in the middle of no man's land, left and right, both lobbing grenades while you sit around and try to minister to the dead and the nearly dead. It's a horrible place to be, and yet I think it's where God has us. Um, and I don't know where you're sitting this morning. Radical positions continue to push and expand all over the place. And there's all, everything is called into question. We wake up with new things that I never thought would be used against Christianity that are used against Christianity. I'm like, wow, we're mad at that now. <sighs> okay. How do we navigate this one? And you may, if you're like me, you may have more friends, you may see more friends deconstructing than, than car washes being constructed in St. Charles County. Um, and the last few weeks seem to have brought a lot of these to the head. 
Uh, for me, lots of heavy conversations. Church abuse, some legitimate, some not so much, some projection. Um, deep questions. And so this sermon that Moses is giving to God's people, in fact, the whole point of this series and going through this and trying to get reoriented of what does it mean to be the people of God, uh, it's just, it's hitting things for me. And so here's where I want to give us some encouragement uh, as, we, as we finish here. Um, this is inspired very much by the author and historian John Dixon, who wrote a book called um, Saints and Bullies, or Bullies and Saints. Um, we're going to start a song. Uh, and this song is Johann Sebastian Bach's Cello Suite One. One of the most recognizable and beautiful works ever composed. And when it's played well, it soothes your mind. It is powerful, beautiful, and peaceful. And yet if I were to try to play this song, even if you gave me days of practice, be painful. You would hear screeches, you would hear awkward pauses where I tried to figure out what finger went where and how did, what note is this thing supposed to hit. But we would never, if I were to sit up here and try to play this, you would never fault Bach for me giving such an awful performance. because the piece that was written is beautiful. And when it's played well, it is powerful. The music that Christ has written into the world that is to be his people, his bride, has had some horrific live performances. Really, really bad. Sometimes I wonder if we're even playing the right instrument. It's had some complicated interpretations that may sound okay, but still feel a little off. But the composer of such beauty, and the music itself is still beautiful, and still powerful, and still peaceful. So Refuge, as we head in this next several weeks into these stipulations for God's people, my, my prayer for us, for me, is that we would always be willing to consider when our temptations are at work, we have been tempted to turn things into gods, to worship the gifts over the giver, when we are able to walk past people without a care in the world and not being convicted to see them as image bearers. When we want to take the hill by violence, 
when God calls us to stand firm, but in peaceful resistance and in love and in mercy and compassion. That we would be humbled in spirit, where we have complicated the gods of the land, where we have put our hope and our affection and our worship in the wrong things, that a humble heart is one that is ripe for correction and for hope. That it is the Lord who defends, it is the Lord who upholds, it is he who gives good things, who commands us to bear his image with grace and generosity and compassion and to love him above every other thing. So here's your practice for this week. Gratitude. <laughs> and be grateful. Paul ends a couple of big, long stipulations in the New Testament with that. And be grateful. This week, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encourage you to even get a journal, even if it's just a piece of paper, even something to write it down. Take notes on your phone, whatever it may be. And thank God for every possible thing you can think of. For oxygen, for beautiful weather, for a friend that says hi, for a text that you didn't expect, for a computer that, act that works, for the ability to stay in touch with others. Let your hearts overflow with gratitude, giving thanks and praise to the God who is the giver of all things. If you want to wake up in the morning and if you want to memorize a passage to go along with that, do that and then just let it flow out as many times as you can this week, the things that you're grateful for. Deal? None of you said anything, so I'm going to assume that you were all like, yeah, I'm right on. Let's pray. Thank you, Jesus, for your love and mercy and grace. that I, and I'm assuming we, take for granted very often. But when our hearts are humbled, we can receive correction and rebuke and a change of direction because you love us. Because you love your people and you love all people. May our hearts not be hard to that. May we not presume your love. May we not somehow sit here and go, well, of course you love me. Look at all that I can do. Oh, that's, that's a lack of self-awareness. But we, may we also not fall into shame that says that there's no way you could love me. I'm far beyond that. Look at all my imperfections. Be the lifter of our heads, the one who bears our shame, that we would faithfully bear the image of God in the days when it's popular and easy, and in the days when it's hard, but may we do it with a gentle spirit and humility, knowing that we were once your enemies and you have lavished your love on us, that we could be called children of God. As ones who desperately need grace, may we show it in abundance. In Jesus' name, amen. Building our identity in Christ for the sake of the world. That's the mission of Refuge Church. For more information, visit us online at seekrefuge.net.